Welcome to another episode, Balanced Achievers. Today is a special treat as we welcome an extraordinary guest to the show, Jonathan Gretchen, the co-founder and CEO of the Foundry Institute. The world's largest pre-seed startup accelerator. Since 2009, John has been the driving force behind scaling the Founder Institute to chapters in over 200 cities and 95 countries. Together, they've nurtured and propelled over 6,500. Plus portfolio companies securing nearly two billion in venture funding, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. John wears many hats as an advisor to Oxford entrepreneurs, that's from Oxford University, as well as the USC Incubator, which is. Referring to the University of Southern California, his journey includes being a partner of the Founded.com, the executive producer of the Founder Showcase, and a former product manager at Real Networks. John's wisdom isn't confined to boardrooms. His writing has graced the pages of Fortune, TechCrunch, and Entrepreneur Magazine. He's taken the stage at startup conferences across four continents, sharing insights that spark innovation. And let's not forget the fun side. John is a global meetup trailblazer with five hundred thousand members across six continents, and rumor has it, a formidable force on skis or a snowboard down the hill. So today. We explore the dynamic journey of John, hearing John's insights on high-performance entrepreneurship, the unique challenges faced by startups, and the essential connection between success and mental well-being. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me, Phoebe. That was a pretty. Pretty formidable、uh, introduction, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I've covered all the little corners. <laughs>、mm-hmm. And、uh, and yes, it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And I thought to just as a startup of the um、uh, the conversation, could you please share a little bit about your journey? Like you journey that begin in the startup world, and what inspired you to co-found the Founder Institute? Sure. So it was an accidental journey, to be honest.、Um, I, like a lot of people,、uh, left college, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life、uh, at the time. I, you know, one of my greatest skills has always been writing, so I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I think I probably made a good choice not going into that field at this point, <laughs>、um, but、um, I wanted to be a journalist.、Uh, so coming out of undergrad and college, I, I enrolled at NYU grad school in New York, and literally went on Craigslist to just try to make some money on the side while I was going to NYU.、Uh, and I found an internship at a online gaming company, and. I really didn't never had much of a, a background in technology or anything like that. I was definitely more on the marketing and PR and journalism side, and I thought this is cool. I like online games, so I, I 
went for the interview. I, I got the job. It was a $10 an hour internship and it was at a company called Game Trust. And uh, one of the investors of that company happened to be Elon Musk. Uh, the founder of that company was Adeo Ressi, who's now my co-founder and founder institute. And to be honest, I just got in at a very early stage where because I was an intern and it was such a small startup team, I was just sort of the yes man, right? It's like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? I was like, yes, 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 sure. Why not? Um, so pretty quickly, I, I was able just in that environment um, to to take over all of kind of marketing and content for this online gaming company. We ended up uh, growing it, uh, raised about $18 million in funding, which sounded a lot more impressive back then. And we're talking about 2005 or so, 2006. Um, and we sold that company to real networks and, and I was basically running most of, you know, all the marketing and the content at that company. So to be honest, it was, uh, you know, there's, there's always a little bit of luck involved and, and just, just circumstance. And this was literally a, an ad that I saw in Craigslist that got me into this kind of startup journey. And after we were acquired by this very large company called real networks, I spent a year there as a product manager and. I sort of realized how much I hated the big company life. <laughs> you know, I sort of, I went, I did the opposite. A lot of people started big companies, they go to startups. I started in startups. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. If I just raise my hand and, and perform and do something, you know, like it'll, it'll get implemented. Right. And then I went into this very large corporate environment and I'm like, wow, now I have to deal with politics and things like that. So um, that was a little bit tricky for me, but um, basically the, the Founder Institute spawned out of all of this because at that startup, at Game Trust, we had some investors that treated us very, very poorly. Um, mm. One of them thought it would be a good idea to kick Elon Musk off our board and replace him with his own son. Mm. <laughs> um, one of them uh, threw clipboards at us in meetings. So it, it was just a, a really bad environment back then for startups. And you know, investors had all the power because they were sort of still reeling from this 2000s dot bomb crash where so many of them lost so much money on, on anything internet related so just the the behavior that investors had towards startups was super predatory and just mm -hmm. really really bad so uh from that experience with game trust we started something called thefunded.com which was a, a totally anonymous place where people could rate and review investors um and really start to bring the power back to founders in that dynamic and that directly led to the Founder Institute because what we saw was that so many people were applying to join defunded.com, um, but they were nowhere near ready to raise funding. Mm -hmm. They just had an idea or they just, you know, just put up a website, had no team or, or anything like that. And they're like, yeah, my next step is to go talk to investors, right? And that's why I want to join your website. And we were rejecting 80 to 90% of the people that were applying to thefunded.com. Um, because they were not ready. And and that really, that gap of knowledge and structure and network is what led to the Founder Institute. It was actually called the Funded Founder Institute at first, which is a big mouthful, terrible name. Um, so we eventually dropped the funded from it, but that literally was, um, was what it was called. And, and that since day one has been the, the goal was to help uh, founders that, you know, from the stage of basically just having that idea to building up the, the structure, the network, um, and, and everything that they need to actually go out and raise funding to build out the company. Mm. Super interesting. And I'm really glad, John, you touched on 
uh, around, you know, early on in this, uh, in this conversation, you touch on the, the investors and their poor behaviors and, and that kind of, um, made me think about, and this is something I think about a lot when it comes to a, a, a mental well-being as well as a high performance in the startup world, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of there's a bit of uh, perception. You might say it's a perception of how a startup and startup founder is meant to work, or it could be just the general culture of it. So I'm curious to hear from your point of view. You know, you, you have been in startup world for so long. I know you're still very young, <laughs> but you started young. And um, how did you see the startup culture evolved since you started? And how did you see some positive changes that you witnessed? To be honest, I, I don't really think I've seen it evolve that much. Mm. <laughs> um, I do think... I, I do think a lot of progress has been made in terms of, uh, you know, just having a lot more women in the field and having mm-hmm. a lot more women founders and a lot more women investors. But that sort of, you know, that change is impressive just because of how bad it was before, right? I think if you look at statistics today, it's still like super low. Um, but at least back in 2006, 2007, which is sort of the time frame I'm talking about here, when we were working with investors, like there were no no women investors were getting funded, or no women startups were getting funded. And I can tell you, I didn't meet any women investors at that point. Um, Now, as far as just like the dynamics between investors and founders, right? I mean, it it certainly changed. Um, That changed a lot. I'd like to think that the fund.com had something to do with that. But you know, over time, it's just that there's always sort of a power dynamic between investors and founders. And at some points, the investors have the, the you know, have, sort of have the leverage and the founders have the leverage. Back then, it was all investors because uh, there just wasn't enough money to go around for startups at that time. So the bar was so high. So investors were able to just, you know, use a lot of really onerous terms and just treat founders not really well. There was a very common thing back then called exploding term sheets, right? It's like, here's your term sheet. Let me know by close of business today. Otherwise it's gone. And I don't want to talk to you ever again. Like that was normal behavior back then. Right now that has changed. Um, and you know, you could argue these last couple of years when we were in the startup bubble, that the power went too much towards the founders. Mm. Right. Um, so now we're sort of getting back to this equilibrium, but but as far as like mental health is concerned and things like that, I, I investors at their core, yeah, their job is to look for outliers, right? Mm-hmm. Their whole business model is investors. They know that nine out of ten investments that they make are either going to lose money or at the very least, like maybe get them back to break even, yes. right? Um, but at that point, it's a loss because they're spending a lot of time. Yeah. They know that approximately ten percent, if they're good of investments are going to be the ones that make it worth their while to be an investor. Mm -hmm. So they're not looking necessarily for a balanced person, (laughs) right? It's almost their job to look for the, 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 the maniacal person who just is going to bust through walls and and, and going to do everything that they need to do to make something successful, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think, I don't, I don't blame them for that. That's just economics, right? I mean, that's just investing. That's their job is to do that. Um, but I, I do think that it's, um, 
you know, it's just it's just sort of the collateral damage from that economic model. Uh, it it puts, yeah, I mean, just insane amounts of pressure on founders, insane amounts of stress, and it, it can lead to to other really 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 bad outcomes. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, again, and I'll point out, like I, I don't I'm not at all trying to say that investors are to blame here. Um, it's just that is just sort of the the macroeconomic playing field that we all operate in, right? Whether you're an entrepreneur or you're working for a, a large company and, and they're answering to the public markets, right? A publicly funded company. I mean, it's just, it's always just grow, 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 produce, 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 mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, it, it can be, it can be crushing. Um, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of founders come in, they come into the startup world with with aspirations to yeah I'm gonna you know work on things that I'm passionate about and, and this kind of stuff but once you start raising money from investors and once you start you know kind of getting into that um, into that whole cycle of like okay you have to show growth you have to show returns the, the equation starts to change very 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 quickly. It's super interesting. Um, I actually spoke to quite a few investors when I was preparing for our podcast role, John, but this was um, beginning of this year. And mm-hmm. the the interesting thing I found out is, first of all, I very much agree with you. You know, a lot of investors, their mentality is this mental well-being. And I, I really appreciate it being honest with me as well, <laughs> because, you know, when it comes to mental well-being, people tend to, you know, say what's politically correct. This is important, da 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 right? But some investors were honest with me. They say, Phoebe, you know, if um, one of my portfolio companies is not performing well, I think what I would care about the most is how this founder is going to uh, do whatever he or she can to improve on that. Not so much of uh, it just doesn't come on the top of their list of mental well-being of, uh, yeah, of, of the founder. But I don't think that's their fault. I think it's just yeah. it's natural. It's- their yeah. job, right? Yeah. We all have jobs. <laughs> Their job is to generate a return. I mean, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and the other interesting thing I found out, I mean, we are, we might be go a bit further down this, uh, uh this, the, the, the opposite side, the, the, not so much of what we tend to talk about today is investor communities. They have their own imbalance of mental well-being. Because their performance is very much driven by, you know, what the their investors want. <laughs> that the yes. people actually gave them the money, which uh, they need to happen. You know, the performance needs to be there. So this is a great point. This is yeah. a great, great point, Phoebe. Because we, um, so yeah, we were doing an event last month, uh, Founder X, and and we had somebody come in and talk about mental well being, and kind of one of the big points that they had was that a lot of founders don't realize that investors themselves are also founders, right? Now, the bigger the investment firms are, right? If we're talking billion dollar investment funds, things like that, you know, at that point, those investors, I think, have probably graduated sort of to being founders. But most investors that smaller startups will work with are managing a couple million dollar up to 20, 30 million dollar funds. And they're they're founders. They're going out there, pounding the pavement. They're raising money just like you are, and they need to show returns just like you do. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I think I think they share more 
um, stresses and things like that with investors than, than they think. Mm-hmm. I think most founders, if you ask them, would qu- classify every investor as just being quote unquote rich. Mm-hmm. When honestly, in a lot of cases, that's, that's not the case. I mean, you can do the math. Most investment funds, their model is, it's known as the two and 20% model. There's a 2% management fee and then they get 20% carry mm-hmm. on on um, you know any of the profits that they make from the in- from the uh, investments that they make as part of that fund. Yes. So two percent of you know whatever the size of the fund is, and and that's not and that's to cover everything on the fund, right? It's not just the one person you're talking to. It's the whole fund. It's the, all the accounting, legal operations, everything. So there is, yeah, I one hundred percent agree that. You know, and that's why I always try to point out that I'm not, I'm certainly, I'm not trying to be like anti-investor here because investors, especially with small funds are founders. They are going through a lot of the same thing that founders do instead of maybe they're not pitching, um, you know, a value proposition, they're pitching a a thesis Mm. for their investment, Mm -mm. right? Um, And they answer to LPs, people that have much larger sums of money. Uh, and you could argue that the the stress is even higher at that point because they're not raising one million dollars; they're raising you know a hundred million in some cases. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it kind of goes it goes up the whole value chain, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. I find it's 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 like a we are collective. <laughs> Doesn't matter if yeah. it's investors or founders. I mean, and and when we dig down to the to the very bottom. Actually, these two subgroups they share the similar uh, issues and challenges when it comes to mental well-being. And um, I don't have to say, John. You know, uh, after digging around and talking to more people in the investor community, I noticed in the Australia New Zealand region there are some investors. Um, they actually become quite aware of uh, of this aspect. So, for example. Good. One of the early episodes that I released. Uh, so for the guys who are who are listening now to us, uh, that's the Balance Achievers episode two. You will find in our archive. Uh, it's a conversation with a lady called Suze Reynolds, and she is the executive chair for Angel Association in New Zealand. So for those of you who happen to be based in New Zealand or in Australia, uh, have a check, you know. And Suze actually runs and also sponsors uh, together with the New Zealand government, a mental well-being program for entrepreneurs. And I believe they run one to two programs a year. So that's targeting New Zealand entrepreneurs. And I remember last time I spoke to Suze, each cohort was about 30 to 50 founders. So if you're interested in that program, I highly recommend on LinkedIn, reach out to Suze Reynolds or feel free to drop me a message on LinkedIn and I can put you in, in touch. But, um, but this is so promising to see. I just, uh, I just, you know, when I, when I got to know Suze and her initiative strong. And no, um, if more, if more people in the value chain can see the importance of it, because I think, at, at and you see this in professional sports as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the last couple of years, there has been a really good trend in professional sports where professional athletes are coming out and saying, "Hey, I have mental health issues." Yeah, right. And it, it's I, I do see a lot of parallels there with entrepreneurship, 
um, because it's sort of, yeah, like, no, you're not supposed to have mental health issues, right? You're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to power through. It's, it's all of these old tropes. But at the end of the day, if, if you have an entrepreneur or if you are an entrepreneur and you're having mental health issues, like think of it from an athlete's perspective. It's like your, your brain is sort of your, your ability to perform in what you're doing right mm -hmm. your brain is your ability to to build a great business and you're like so anything that impacts your brain <laughs> um can be a detriment to your performance yeah. right and I, I i think yeah i i do think that the there's there is starting to be acknowledgement around those sorts of things but i i think we have a long way to go mm. yeah I agree with you very much so, John. And we looked into the investor side just then. And there's obviously things needs to be reevaluated and adjusted on that side. But mm. I'm thinking, John, when, when you reflect on the overall uh, startup culture right now, do you think there's anything else, any other aspects that need reevaluation and adjustment to help with the mental well-being side? uh for startups and their founders yeah i could talk about it all day long honestly um it's we tried just as a reference point like we tried to put i believe it was 2018 2019 or so we came up with a new version of our curriculum for founder institute which is you know what, what the structure we use to help people that have ideas build out businesses worldwide and and we started to put in different components in there related to mental well-being right so literally it was very innocuous things like take a walk spend time with family right things like that and we pretty immediately got pushback from mm -hmm. founders um because they're like why, why are you tell like i came to you founder institute to help me build a, a great company right so why are you telling me to take a walk and spend time with my family and do things like that and it, it's I, I still do see that dynamic as a founder you are supposed to quote unquote crush it mm. right that's all you're supposed to do is crush it and i think now you, you know i mean what was his name G gary vernachuk right i mean he had this thing it, it's where it's they would call it essentially um you know hustle porn i think was the the term for it mm -hmm. across social media it was just like yeah i'm crushing oh yeah i'm 20 hours in on the day man look how awesome it is yeah where at, at the end and and that's just a super super unhealthy unhealthy mentality that you know if i had a founder that told me that they crushed it in four hours i'd be super more impressive than if they crushed it in 20. Mm -hmm because that 20 is not sustainable yeah so i, I th this is where i don't think there's been that much change i think a lot of and you know there is just across our culture i think global culture there is a greater acceptance of mental health mm. doesn't necessarily mean that oh you're weak and you're not strong right i do think that generally um there's been a lot of leaps there, but I think in entrepreneurship, just because of that dynamic where, you know, entrepreneurship is all about doing a lot with a little, right? Yes. So, so it's, it's going to be, 
much more challenging in the entrepreneurial realm to kind of make some of those some of those leaps. Yeah, that's so true. And I also hear is is more like it's more likely that the perception of how the startup and the founder are supposed to be, but who really originally came up with this? You know, the entrepreneurs that trailblaze the whole way, and that's that's the they they made success in the end and. And uh, that's how they lived, and and maybe they only the successful entrepreneurs, perhaps they only shared the the positive side of the story because no one really want to talk about the the, the bad side, right? Oh, uh, they do one hundred percent, one hundred percent. It's revisionist history, mm. always, right? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you right now, just as as part of my journey, I tend to overwork myself. Mm. I wear two hearing aids. Because I'm not, I'm not saying that I lost my hearing by being an entrepreneur, but just I, I worked myself so hard that I would um, just disregard a lot of real health issues that I was having and, and just not go to the doctor and things like that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and at one point, I literally went to the hospital because I had internal bleeding, and I'm pretty sure it was from stress. I never figured out what it was mm -hmm. in the hospital for several days, um, but I lost half my blood. Mm. because of a um it was essentially just an internal bleeding from my my lower intestine mm -hmm. but it is yeah i mean it's the, the stress is real right and you're not going to hear that kind of stuff because yeah who wants to hear that kind of stuff yes it's much more going to be oh i faced challenges and i persisted right um and I could tell that story too. Like those were challenges, and sure, you could say that I persisted. But um, this is where I think just acknowledging a lot of these things is super important mm -hmm. for for all entrepreneurs because it's just we're we're predisposed as entrepreneurs to having mental health issues, mm. and this has been proven scientifically. There was a big study by UCSF, a University of California, San Francisco. Um, a couple of years ago that literally said that we're ingrained that way. It's, it's sort of selection bias, right? It's people that are ingrained that way, seek out entrepreneurship. But but just by the field that we choose, yeah, we are predisposed to those things because the field that we choose is all about no excuses, right? Like, don't tell me that you're, you know, that you're sick. Show me the metrics. Mm. Um and so it is, we, we are just, yeah, we're predisposed to these things and not enough people talk about it. And mm -hmm. I certainly don't have the answers myself, but I, I think at least one of the answers is to just to start talking about it. Cause the more people talk about it, the more it's acknowledged, the more it's acknowledged then then, you know, the more accepted it will be just in the, in the larger business landscape. Mm. That's, that's so true. And I'm really hoping just <laughs> balanced achievers can can be uh, a little bit of light for now, but hopefully it's going to be stronger in the near future and can have this voice in the startup circle to to really challenge the, the norms, yeah? And how all these years startups and their founders, they're perceived to behave. You know, this is, that's not the only way. And that's, that's actually a very, I would describe it as not polarized, but kind of, 
kind of these these posed kind of posture by other successful entrepreneurs who maybe do not want to talk about the full of their stories. So there yeah. are always two sides of the stories, right? Every mm-hmm. successful entrepreneur, if they're being honest, will acknowledge luck. That's right. They don't. If they don't acknowledge luck, you should question it. Number one, <laughs> um, and number two, yeah, if they don't acknowledge those downtimes, and I mean, there's just it's it's a grind. Mm-hmm. There's not. It's not just oh, this this light bulb and people think you're brilliant. Um, every entrepreneur has probably been told no thousands of times. Mm-hmm. And I think your average person, at least your average aspiring entrepreneur that that starts to get into the space with wide eyes, mm-hmm. um, they can't take a thousand no's. They probably, 10 no's, they're going to be extremely demoralized. Yeah. Right? So it is just that persistence is super important. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I think there's there's... Yeah, persistence isn't just, oh, you know, powering through it. It's also like, hey, you have to have some methods and some ways to be able to deal with those lows in your life. Otherwise, mm-hmm. how are you how are you gonna keep kind of getting off that horse and getting back on the saddle again? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that a bit deeper if uh, <laughs> if we may, John. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, there are techniques and tips people I can actually use to get them out from those lows. And perhaps managing just uh, receiving and hearing all these no's. Uh, could you share with our audience a little bit more, please? Yeah, sure. So some of the things, here's what I would do first, all right? I, I would just acknowledge that entrepreneurship sucks, okay? Um, and I think that a lot of people are drawn to entrepreneurship because it's, oh, they say, I, I'm going to work for myself. Mm right? Mm. Most of the time, that's a folly. When you start the business, you start to realize, okay, yes, maybe now I don't have a boss that's six, five levels above me or whatever. And as I told you, I hated working in a a very large corporate as well. Um, But your responsibility then starts to fall at the people that you have motivated to join your mission. Right. So at that point, you're sort of reporting to your employees. It becomes this weird reverse engineered thing. Right. You're reporting and to your family too. Right. Everybody that you kind of were able to convince and rally around this crazy idea that you had that you were going to go do this risky thing, you're mm-hmm. sort of reporting to them at that point. So I'd say just acknowledging the fact that, look, entrepreneurship, generally speaking, it's not a great way to make money. Okay, if you were to compare it to other risky ways, generally speaking, it's not a great way to work for yourself, right? If you want to work for yourself, yeah, you could be a consultant, a solo consultant, then you're really working for yourself. But if you're going to start a startup and you have to rally people around your mission, inherently, that means you have to rally a lot of people around something that you're not going to be able to pay them a lot of money to do in the early stages, which means if the idea fails, you report to them. Mm. right because they believed in you (laughs) so you're not reporting to yourself um and i think the other thing too and and i've I've seen this a lot all right and i don't think most people will acknowledge this either but there there is this coolness factor of being a founder and 
a lot of people just like to on their LinkedIn. LinkedIn's kind of turning in, into a little bit of a self-congratulatory cesspool, right? Mm -hmm. I think we've all seen, but um, it, it's it's a people love to be able to just throw up on LinkedIn. Oh, I'm the founder of this project, right? And they get all these high fives and kudos and stuff from everybody they knew, high school friends, family, all these kinds of things. But then they go out there and build it, and if it fails. Like now they have this extra shame of having to say, okay, I tried to do this thing and it failed. So, you know, it's, I, I encourage a lot of people, look, don't talk about your startup until you raise funding or something on your social media, right? At least wait for some kind of social validation because trust me, we have a hard time. We have 7,000 portfolio companies now. We have a hard time keeping track of all of them. And a lot of times we're on their LinkedIn and we're saying, hey, well, you know, your LinkedIn says that you're still doing this. Are you still working on this full time? And they're like, no, I, I haven't. I just haven't updated it. And it's been like three or four years, right? So there is that like shame factor for sure. Um, now, as far as things that I have done to, to sort of manage it, and again, let me reiterate that I'm no expert. Um, but but I have read up and I've, I've tried to, to look at different things to, to help improve myself because I don't consider myself a balanced achiever. Mm. I'd say that the fact that I acknowledge that I'm not a balanced achiever gets me a decent way towards being a balanced achiever. Just that acknowledgement because I'm willing to acknowledge it, which means I'm willing to kind of work on it, mm. right? Mm. Um, but one of the things that I have seen is that it's for me, it, it's usually a question of energy. And there are certain things that I think everybody in the world that just sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, like they're just triggers. They things that if something happens to you, it's just really going to piss you off to the point where it's going to be hard for you to move on from it for a minute. You know what I mean? For me, like my trigger, something that will happen that honestly isn't that big of a deal, but will suck an unreasonable amount of energy from me is if. I feel underappreciated for things that I have done, mm. right? And that's just mine. And that's something that after hearing from some other people, them telling me what their triggers were, then I'm like, okay, you know what? Like, okay, I should probably figure out what my trigger is. And that's the one. And mm. it's the thing that, you know, if you had a conversation yesterday and somebody said something and it's, it's just the thing that you can't get out of your head. You know what I mean? It just keeps bothering you and bothering you and bothering you. And it's probably going to impact a lot of your meetings. And it's probably going to impact your work. It's not going to allow you to move on to the next project or whatever. Um, I, I think identifying what that is, is super important. And then on top of identifying it, then what I have done is I'll punt it. Right. So let's say I get an email and it's somebody that I feel is being super unappreciated for what I've done. And I know uh, in the past, I would just, you know, just, I don't know, unread the email or, or whatever and move on in my day, but it would just bother me. So now what I do is I say, okay, hey, let's schedule a meeting to talk about this, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then a meeting gets scheduled and maybe it's a week, two weeks from now. So at least at that point, I'm punting it. So mentally, I can kind of check out from this because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to deal with this later. We're going to get on the phone. That's benefit number one. Benefit number two is that we'll actually discuss it on the phone because uh, as I'm sure Phoebe, you know, and, and anybody else <laughs> trying to, uh, to deal through conflict over email is not, is not a good medium. Nice There's a lot, 
there's a lot of context that's lost there. And most things over email sound much meaner than they intend to be um, just, just by the nature of that, that form of communication. Right. So I feel like that, that, that would be my number one thing is to identify the things that really suck the life out of you, so to speak, acknowledge them. And then whenever it happens, punt, create a meeting out of it so that you can deal with it in person. Number one, which will probably allow you to deal with it in a much more civil way where things won't be misinterpreted. And number two, it, it, at least for me, it has allowed me to get it sort of off of my mental plate yes. right now because I'm punting it and saying, okay, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to this person next Tuesday, right? I'll mm. deal with it then. Mm. So that, that, that is kind of one thing that's, that's been big for me. Um, and then, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I think, building up a, a network of people that you can talk about this stuff with is, is also, I'd, I'd say is probably the next biggest important thing. Yeah. Um, we try to do this in the founder Institute by creating these working groups. But if you can just have some kind of network of people that are going through the similar thing as you, that you can talk about it with, yeah. without shame, without judgment, mm -hmm. without having to, trying to say you're killing it and every metric you have is is hockey stick up and to the right <laughs> um that is super important mm -hmm. uh, because most of the sales calls investor calls and things like that like you're going to have to project the utmost confidence and positivity mm -hmm. and if you don't have kind of a correlating outlet to to talk about kind of mentally what you're really going through that I feel can start to bubble and, and turn into sort of a, a ticking time bomb of sorts. Mm. Right? Yeah. This is super helpful. And thank you so much, John. Another topic I'm quite curious about is your own approach when it comes to decision making. Because as a founder, well, I don't know how many decisions a founder typically need to make every day, but it's a lot. Too many. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you face tough choices, do you have work on a system to make this decision-making more efficient, for example? I, it's a really great question. I, number one, the first thing that I would do, and this isn't groundbreaking, this is to try to base decisions on metrics, right? Now, the, the way that in a founder's day-to-day -day job is that normally maybe there's somebody else that is giving you information and saying, hey, I need you to make a decision on this. You have to be able to boil down. Any equation is usually comes down to two different metrics mm -hmm. is what I've seen, right? It's like, okay, well, I have to make a decision yes or no on this project. So it's usually saying, okay, well, let's say that I were investing time in some initiative and it may or may not be working, right? So there's usually two questions. Maybe the first question is, okay, um, the metric that we identified this part of this project, is that increasing? Yes or no. Um, and then the second question would be, did we identify the right metric? Mm. Right. Because I, I do see that in a lot of situations, what we realize is the metric wasn't correct, mm. but that decision one's a tricky one for sure. I, 
founders have to make way too many decisions on a daily basis. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure I'm, I'm the foremost authority to provide a, to provide insight on that. Uh, that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's yeah. it's just a matter of fact that uh, as many or guests answer the same questions, it, it really provides the audience that uh, broader perspective. You know, there are different ways of doing this, and they can pick and choose and and develop their own, right? Right, and I, I, th that would be my advice because it is the answer does lie within like you have to make your decisions based off metrics, right? But it's that's a really easy thing to say for anybody that's been in that and actually going through those kinds of decisions. You start to realize, okay, well, it's what is the metric that we're basing the decision on? Is the metric valid? And then the other thing that we see a ton too is are we calculating the metric accurately? Mm -hmm. Right. So then you start going through this rabbit hole. So I, yeah, that that's that's a real tough one, and I, and I wish I could just say, hey, you know, hire people that you trust and let them do their job. But I but as a founder, you, you typically don't have a lot of budget, so you are probably going to have to be making a lot of the bigger decisions yourself, and it's it's hard. It's hard to make decisions in an uneven environment where the data you're getting may not be accurate or valid, and it may be irrelevant tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's just, I think it's just another one of these things we need to acknowledge. <laughs> uh, I have a couple more questions, John, mm -hmm. but I'm super conscious of your time commitment to this as well. Um, do, do you happen to have anything after this or have to go? Either? I'm, I'm good for, I'm good for about another 15 minutes. Okay. Also, awesome. there's, there's okay. plenty of time for us. Is that enough? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay. So, John, I'd like to maybe turn the conversation slightly and focus back on yourself, on, on your own journey, and look at some challenges and triumphs. So I'm very curious, uh, could you please share us a particular challenging moment in your startup journey and the lessons you have learned from it. Sure. Um, so many, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, there <laughs> is. We're gonna, we're, it's we're going to be fifteen years in here pretty soon. Yeah. Um. So I'll try to I'll try to think of one that that's probably super most relevant to to founders, just because that's generally you know who I'm speaking to. It's. There was a point early on in the startup journey where we literally had about half our team quit mm. in one day, right? Now, to be fair, at that point, the team was like eight people or something. So yeah. four people quit wasn't a hundred or something, but but still, like four out of eight people quitting is... Not a lot. It's, yeah, yes. <laughs> it's, it's something it's like, okay, like clearly uh, we need to fix this problem, but more importantly, learn from what has happened here. Right. So I, I don't think enough people put, but nearly enough energy into onboarding and identifying the right people to bring into a company. Since that day, I literally try to scare people away from joining Founder Institute when we're hiring for full-time employees. My typical 
uh, interview, you know, I'll do all the normal interview stuff and then I'll ask them, okay, what questions do you have for me? If they have no questions, that's really, really bad, <laughs> by the way. Um, but once they start doing getting into the questions and they ask about culture and stuff and I tell them like, look, it's, it's really, really hard. Right. I mean, we are, and, and even though Founder Institute is 15 years old, we operate very much like a startup. We're in so many different markets. Each of those markets has their own unique issues. We have a lot of different things going on. So I tell them that, look, you, you have, you're not going to get a lot of uh, micromanagement. You're not going to get a lot of training. It's going to be stressful. There's going to be days when, you know, you, you need to get something done, but you're not really getting enough direction to do it. And that's just, that's the job. Right. Because we just are sort of a small and scrappy company. So I, that having half the team quit was that, that was around the time, by the way, when, uh, when I had that, that health issue where I lost half my blood, um, was just a super stressful thing because in my mind I was like, Oh wow. Like this whole thing that we've been building is crashing around me, you know? Um, but it's, yeah, what it what it led to was just look, we need to to just be almost. I wouldn't even say honest in our hiring. I'd say we'd have to, we have to get to a point where we're almost trying to scare people away, where we say, look, these are the downsides of working at this company, and we're going to actually lead with those, versus before that we probably were taking a more conventional approach of you know, those things may be coming up later on in conversations rather than us kind of leading with it, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. So that to me, nothing's more demoralizing than when you are in a small company, you don't have a lot of budget, you don't have all this stuff, and then, and then people start leaving, right? I mean, you feel like your whole your, your, your whole mental thing that you've been building just is starting to fall apart when you're losing those key supporters and um that happens a lot in startups mm -hmm. so i would uh yeah i would just encourage people to to just be super clear i think way too many startup founders are recruiting early team members sort of tried and you know just the, these old tactics of saying oh look like yeah you're, we're not going to pay you a lot but this money can be worth a ton Right. But if you're recruiting people who are looking for short term monetary compensation to a startup, you're already failing. You need to be recruiting people that believe in what you're trying to do. Yeah. And if they believe in what you're trying to do, then the inevitable hundred setbacks that you're going to have in the next 365 days will be fine. Right. But if you're, if you're bringing them on because they think that their equity is going to be super valuable in the short term, they're going to check out at probably setback number 10 or something. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd say that is, a yeah, that, that was, that was a big one for me. It was just, you start to see the team crumbling apart and you start to really question what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, that is so true. Now on a brighter note, <laughs> the other side of the coin, what would be a milestone or major achievement or could be a, a small achievement as well that really brings a smile to your face when you reflect on it? I'd say for us, 
expansion of Founder Institute has always been um, organic, mm. right? So the, the example I always give is that we, we never looked at like a risk board and said, okay, we want to go conquer this market with Founder Institute. People came to us and that's why we expanded. Mm. And we were in Kabul, Afghanistan before we were in London, for example. Um, because we had people in Kabul, Afghanistan who approached us with the U.S. government to run programs there. So I, I think for us, kind of a big validation was that when literally we had more demand of people wanting to start founders to programs in their cities mm -hmm. than we can handle. Mm -hmm. And that was probably a moment for us. And we got profiled in New York Times, you know, like, like we, we had other big moments, but the New York Times thing, honestly, it was just sort of a luck thing. Like somebody who knew somebody introduced them to me and we got an article, right? Like, is that really, <laughs> was that really an accomplishment? No, it was great. Don't get me wrong. The New York Times article, and it was the cover of the Sunday business section. Like it was amazing. But at the end of the day, that was just sort of circumstance. The fact that we had people from cities all over the world emailing us and a backlog of people wanting to start founder institutes in their city. Mm -hmm. That, uh, that was, I think the most rewarding thing as a team. Um, it was also, by the way, stressful, <laughs> right? Cause then it's like, Hey, we can't screw this up. We need to get a proper CRM. We need to do this. We need to do that. Right. It, it led to, it led to a whole flurry of activity. Um, but I'd say just, yeah, having, having that organic growth when people are knocking down your door for something, I think that is sort of the ultimate validation, right? It's not increasing the you know percentage points on conversion on some ad you're running. Mm -hmm. When people are coming to you for your products, then um, that that's that creates a lot of wind in the sails. Yeah. And and by the way, another thing that we did because moments like that are not super frequent, right? In any startup journey. Mm -hmm. um, it is super important that you celebrate the wins as an early stage company. Uh, and as a founder, whatever it is that you're doing, even if it's a small win, right? So we were very actively, you know, if some founder uh, or any, any customer really like sent us some really heartfelt review, we would be sharing that across the whole team, mm -hmm. you know, because it is, you can lose once you start looking at spreadsheets and stuffs and it becomes numbers, you start to lose the humanity of it. And then you start to lose the purpose. So I do think it's super important to share, share the little wins, right? Share the small things. It exactly. doesn't have to be some huge, some huge thing. Otherwise you'll just get sucked into, you know, if you're not thinking about the customer, it's also bad for your startup, right? Cause you have to think about the customer. Um, but you have to, do whatever you can to just make it more than those uh, those numbers and spreadsheets um, to to keep the team going and to just keep the purpose intact. Yeah, that's very wise. And thank you, John, for sharing that. Um, so our conversation is coming to the conclusion part, and I like to kind of cast overview a bit. Uh, wider now out again towards the um, the overall startup sector. I'm curious when looking ahead, John, which ones do you foresee the shape of future startups? 
and um, how should founder prepare for these these challenges? I know it's an incredibly large topic, but maybe just one or two things that you will see the shape of this future is coming. Sure. So I would, and and I wish I could leave with a more positive note, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today are just the amount of pressure that is on startups for productivity. Yeah. Right. And on founders for productivity. And and by the way, anyone who's listening who's not a founder, right? Even if you're just a manager and your your managers are expecting you in any in, in any field to produce in a very efficient and productive way, right? AI is going to throw a total like napalm bomb onto all of these things and, and just increase the expectations exponentially. So there's a positive side of this where uh, people that are using AI right now and that are becoming really familiar with how to use it in their day-to-day work and honestly, don't don't pay for any course or anything to start using these things. Pay twenty dollars for for GPT four right now, and literally the, the best way to learn is just to start using it. Okay, day to day, it's all trial and error with these tools. Um, the people that are using this right now are going to be able to show how productive that they are, um, and they're going to excel. And the people that don't are going to I mean, everybody's going to feel the brunt of expectation, but I do think that it's the technology world is all about scale, right? And scale means getting a lot out of a little. And that's what AI helps you do. So I, you know, I wish I could leave on a note of positivity here, but what I would say, it's not necessarily negativity. It's just saying that there's a massive technology paradigm shift that's going on right now with AI and generative models where, uh, you know, especially as a startup founder, who I I think is always going to just have a a much increased expectation of productivity versus resources. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody is going to be expected to produce a little bit more and AI can help people do that. And then people that don't use AI, are going to feel even more heat because they're just not going to be as productive. So that's my uh, that's my closing thought, I guess. I, I wish I could leave with more positivity, but um, it is you, you know just I I would definitely I'm, I'm using I'm using it as much as possible. I'm literally trying to use it like on an hourly basis, and I'm just like if I'm not using it right now, how can I be using it? Like that's sort of how I've been approaching these things. Um, and I'm trying to push a, a lot of my team members to do the same because it really is at that stage where it's it's going to be able to do 60% or so quality of work for a lot of knowledge jobs, right? And when I say 60%, I don't say that means 60% that people get laid off. I, I mean that it's, let's say that 100% of the quality is what is expected the AI will be able to produce about 60% of that quality, mm-hmm. right? Whereas a human will then need to have to fill that last 40%. Um, but if a human is trying to fill that whole 100% and not utilizing the AI to create the first 60%, then you are going to start falling behind. And 
you know, I don't, I don't, um, it, it's, it's, it's not something that like, it's just going to have a lot of implications on the future of work and on society. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to preach to anybody that I can to, to get on board, not because I, it's in my financial interest to do so, just because I do see this, the, the amount of um, upheaval this is going to bring yes. uh, to society is going to be pretty huge. Mm. So if, if people can get ahead of it now and, and start using these tools and leveraging these tools to, to be more productive, mm. um, then that is... Uh, then, then that's the smart thing to do. And, and, and I do think that ties into mental health because if you're trying to do 100% of your work without AI, or as other people are doing that 100% with 60% help from AI, then you're going to be at a massive disadvantage of taking care of yourself and mm -hmm. of your mental well-being. Absolutely. And I'd like to thank you again, John. It's such an incredible honor to have you at uh, Balance and Shiro today. And um, and I really want to express my appreciation as well as on behalf of our listeners of your incredible sharing, you know, opening up to your personal stories and thank you for your courage. Thank you so much. Share share your uh, share your feelings with people. Honestly, don't. The more that people acknowledge that mental health is, is a thing, which is kind of crazy that, a lot of people still aren't doing that. Mm -hmm. um, find people that you can share those stories with. Um, reject the hustle porn. Reject the I'm killing it. Right? If you meet somebody at a coffee shop and tell them that you're killing it, guess what? that person's going to ask you for a job. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, whereas if you told them, no, I'm actually really struggling on X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. maybe that person can connect you to somebody can help you <laughs> you know what i mean like like so it's literally it is yeah um it's okay to to, to not be growing you know 10x a month yes um, right. and, and the more that you tell people that honestly you'll you'll the more sane you'll be but also it, it'll probably in, increase your chances of success too because those conversations that you have will actually bring you some people that can help you mm, that is so true and uh, thank you again john okay thank you <laughs>